Hi, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Rockadopolis. I'm Yislike Rockadopolis. And I'm Lance Rockadopolis. And today we're going to talk about the Regency period in France after the death of Louis XIV. But first, we really don't have any kinky stuff to talk about because we talked about everything last week. What did we do yesterday? We, well, at least I suffered from the flu. So <laughs> if that's your kink. Um, we did do some of our just kind of cuddling kinky stuff like nipple torture and CBT. Mm-hmm. And, and we do have a couple of geographical shout outs. One is to Denver, Colorado. Hi, everybody. I hope you are enjoying this beautiful, clear day today after what seems like endless snowstorms. And also a shout out to Glasgow, Scotland, where, so I've heard, people still fight with swords in the streets sometimes. I got your sword right here, Glasgow. So on to (laughs) our discussion. In this episode, we'll focus on the transgressive sexual exploits of a few key members of the French aristocracy during the period of the regency of Louis XV. And I think that it's a really good time in kink for us to reflect on that period, given the extent to which kink culture has been mainstreamed and sanitized within the last 10 or so years. But the purpose of this discussion is actually not to promote the types of behavior that we'll be talking about. I think it's fair to say, based on what I've read about them over the years, that the people we're talking about were total assholes and should not be considered kinky role models at any level. The real purpose of this episode is to help us explore one early stage in the development of what we might call kinky culture today, to start to see repeating patterns and iterations of a variety of themes and ideas in order to enrich our own kinky inner lives with inspiring, challenging, and surprising imagery and ideas. So the people we're going to talk about have a strong connection with the notorious Marquis de Sade, who was particularly fascinated with them, even though he lived a generation or so later. And he seems to have looked back on the early 18th century libertines with a mixture of awe and contempt. As most of our listeners probably know, the Marquis de Sade is a well-known writer and historical figure from late 18th century France, and he's best known for his extremely pornographic sadomasochistic fiction. And one of his novels, titled The 120 Days of Sodom, is about four wealthy, powerful, and extremely evil men, a duke, a bishop, a judge, and a banker, who acquire a secluded chateau in a remote part of Switzerland hire a bunch of old and grotesque prostitutes to tell stories about their glory days, and kidnap a bunch of adolescent boys and girls whom they proceed to ritually rape, torture, and murder. Even given the subject matter, it's a very weird book, equal parts horrifying and hilarious, which is typical of Saad's work in general, 
And, like some of his other novels, it's basically a social satire in the form of the hardest core porn that anyone could imagine. And it's also clear that he based at least two of the four main characters on several real people of the Regency period. So in this episode, we'll see if we can locate a variety of meanings in the sexual behavior of four real-life Regency perverts. But first, Lance is going to track way back to the reign of Louis XIV, because several historians have suggested that his extremely controlling ways with the aristocracy may have helped create social and cultural conditions that sowed the seeds of the terrible behavior after his death. Okay, let's get into it. Louis Fourteenth. He was born on September 5th in 1638, and his reign was the longest of any European monarch, even to this day, from 1643, when he was just five years old, until his death in 1715. He likened himself as the Greek god Apollo and was called the Sun King. He was very controlling, very distrustful of the aristocracy, and that comes from experiences early in his life. He and his mother had to deal with multiple uprisings. There were several instances of them having to flee Paris, the cause of which were a series of civil wars in France between 1648 and 1653, led by an aristocratic revolt, which was supported by the various local parliaments. Overall, Louis XIV was extremely successful as a tyrant. He centralized the monarchy's power, and he did this through multiple methods, the first of which is being successful in his tax reforms. The aristocracy of France had many exemptions from taxation previous to this, and therefore, the monarchy had very little finances that actually reached the king, and thus the king was very limited in power. Louis XIV taxed everyone, including the aristocracy, albeit to a limited extent. He also taxed the bourgeois and the peasants. In combination with this, Louis bolstered commerce and trade, so his economic policies were very helpful to bringing in revenue. He began to employ people from the middle classes as his administrators, so there was this growing staff of people that were completely loyal to him. He wasn't just relying on courtiers to uh, help run things. In this way, he was able to finance the growth and expansion of his government and the military as well. Nobles were required to attend Louis XIV at Versailles in order to obtain tax concessions and exemptions. And he kept them busy with Hans' cultural events and arranged marriages. Every move and edict was a consolidation of his ever-expanding power. With all of the aristocracy occupied, he could keep an eye on them. He actually had his staff reading all of their correspondence and spied on all of their activities. He also forced France to become entirely Catholic, even though previously there was some leniency for Protestants. So it sounds like the reign of Louis XIV was extremely repressive. He used whatever means he could come up with to control the people around him 
in order to maintain his power, often including controlling who was allowed to have sex with whom. And at this point in French history, it's important to note that quote-unquote sodomy, which was defined as basically any form of sex outside of missionary-style PIV sex, was a capital offense. Technically, you could be executed for butt-fucking, or even getting a blowjob. But of course, everyone was doing it. So that creates a weird kind of psychosocial dynamic, where all of these people are doing very illegal things that they probably won't get in trouble for. But it's well known that everyone, or almost everyone, is doing illegal stuff, and some of those people happen to be extremely powerful. Who would you prosecute? Who would you hold to the letter of the law? So because Louis XIV outlived both his firstborn son and his firstborn's son's son, one of his great-grandsons would end up being Louis XV. And when the Sun King died in 1715, Louis XV was age five and had to wait until he was all of 13 years old before he could start running the country. And so the Duke of Orléans, a nephew of Louis XIV, was appointed as regent, the man in charge, until 1723. So we'll focus our discussions on four historical figures of the Regency period, the time between when Louis XIV died and his great-grandson ascended to the throne. So the four figures are the Duke of Orléans, the regent himself, the Cardinal Dubois, who was not an aristocrat, actually. He was the son of an apothecary, or so it was said. And the two other figures were from a slightly later generation, kind of like Gen Z to the Regency's millennials. There was the Count de Sade, a high-level aristocrat from Provence, who happened to be the Marquis de Sade's father and the Count of Charolais, who fully embodied the archetype of an evil French aristocrat. So we'll start with the Duke of Orléans. He was born in 1674, and he died in 1723, and he had already developed a bad reputation under Louis XIV, and his reputation only got worse during the Regency. In the court of Louis XIV, he was known as a womanizer, and his own mother admitted that he, quote, used a woman like a toilet. He was also a raging alcoholic, known to drink five bottles of champagne a day, and frequently went to mass stinking drunk. Moreover, there were rumors of incest with his daughters, and especially Marie-Louise, with whom he was reputed to have a long-time sexual affair even after he had married her off to the Duke de Berry. Another fun fact about the regent was that he was known as Philippe the Poisoner. Rumors abounded that he had actually poisoned Louis XIV's son and grandson in order to take control of the monarchy after the Sun King's death. Additionally, after hearing the stories about his wife and her father, the Duke de Berry showed up at Versailles to pick her up and take her back home, but after dinner, he complained of extreme stomach pain and then promptly died. The second 
gentleman, and I hesitate to use that word, was Cardinal Dubois. His dates are 1656 to 1723. So he was an old guy. Yeah, in his 70s. Dubois is attributed with a quote, To become a great man, it is necessary to be a great rascal. He was one of the four great cardinal ministers. These cardinals served as advisors to the King of France. During the Regency, Dubois rose to the status of cardinal through bribery. It is suspected that he stole 8 million francs to achieve that title. The regent called Dubois the most rascally, atheistic, and worst priest there has ever been. I think he was talking about him in terms of endearment. It was said that the regent gave him a series of kicks in the ass, one each for his sins. One as the rogue, the pimp, the priest, the minister, and the archbishop. After the fifth kick, Dubois stayed in the bent-over position. The regent asked, Well, what are you waiting for? Dubois answered, I beg your pardon, I await the sixth as cardinal. It was also observed that Dubois had very little religious education and actually had a hard time remembering the Lord's Prayer in his ceremonial promotion to the cardinalship. According to Donald Thomas, one of the Marquis de Sade's biographers, Dubois was one of the region's designated party planners, known for setting up elaborate sexual games and entertainments. Thomas describes a spectacle in which, quote, a naked man and woman, legs clamped around each other's necks, rocked as if on a seesaw, supported by Dubois kneeling on all fours. As they rocked to and fro, the couple's bodies erupted rhythmically, drawing applause from the onlookers. So the next rascal we'll be talking about is the Count de Sade. He was born in 1701 and died in 1767. Of the four men in question, the Count de Sade was probably the most chill. He was really mostly just into straight-up sex, but with men and women. He was rich, powerful, and bisexual, so he had a lot of options. He particularly enjoyed trawling the public gardens of Paris for young men to have sex with, which kind of strikes me as reminiscent of San Francisco in the 1970s. Also kind of reminds me of the Brambles in Central Park, New York. Little did he know that he was being tailed by Louis XV's spies and was actually arrested at one point whilst having sex with some twink behind the bushes. <laughs> the Count de Sade was a drunk, a drug addict, and a womanizer. He also accrued a huge amount of gambling debt from his years spent in Germany as a diplomat. Interestingly, like his son, he also enjoyed writing fiction and he wrote poetry. And his letters are still used as primary documents by contemporary historians of that time period. In a letter to one of his mistresses, he wrote, Only idiots are constant. One must submit to whatever temptation presents itself. I've sometimes known faithful lovers. Their sadness, moroseness would make you tremble. Which is so interesting. Because I can totally see someone practicing polyamory saying something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, people who aren't 
monogamous just aren't monogamous. And to try to force someone into being monogamous um, could really bum them out, to put it lightly. So they just don't understand the virtue of being faithful and just they're just totally getting into the spirit and indulging every single whim that comes comes to their mind. Well, that's not at all what I was saying, <laughs> but okay. And at the end of that passage, he writes, if my son were to be faithful, I would be outraged, which is interesting because the Marquis de Sade was his only child and the farthest thing from monogamous, but his father still hated him for mm. some reason. But we'll get into that in the next episode. The last person that we will talk about is the Count de Charolais. He was born in 1700 and died in 1760. And he was actually one of the grandsons of Louis XIV. Charolais had a very high status in French nobility, but he was also a very bad person indeed. He was known to kill people randomly for his personal amusement. And he literally got away with multiple murders. The regent stated that although he could not personally punish Charles due to his rank, he would gladly pay another person to do it. He had a violent temper and was a sadist. He was actually referred to as the Green Monkey by his contemporaries because of his ugliness and depravities. He used to kidnap and detain women and girls off the street to rape them and use in sadistic orgies that he arranged with other debauchés. He was known to shoot peasants and workers at random. In one particularly vicious episode, he got the Marquise de Saint-Sulpice drunk and tied firecrackers under her skirt. The poor lady suffered burns on her legs, torso, and vagina. Because of his rank as a member of both of the royal families of France, Charolais could not be legally prosecuted. But at one point, he went to Louis XV to ask for forgiveness, and the king said, The pardon you ask is granted, but I shall be so more pleased to pardon the man who kills you. So what do we make of all of this bad sexual behavior? What might it tell us about the Regency period or even about sex itself? How is sex itself rhetorical? And we're not just talking about what people say about sex, but also about what the sex itself says. Somatic rhetoric, the rhetoric of the body, can take a lot of different forms. And those forms include different types of sex. Quote-unquote missionary-style sex carries a lot of meaning, not just because of the term missionary-style. For many people, the actual sex act reinforces all kinds of gender norms and assumptions about who does and should have the power. Same with quote-unquote topping and bottoming. Tops do the acting and bottoms receive the action. Unless you get a power bottom, but the very idea of a power bottom physically disrupts the top-bottom dynamic, basically rendering the whole concept ambiguous. Pegging as an act of power exchange is obviously rhetorical. Even though a lot of pegging pundits will insist that it has nothing to do with power, well, I personally am 100% sure that at least for me and you, Lance, 
pegging is about power. And I'm particularly disturbed when I see pegging videos where the woman is making all kinds of pleasure noises like she actually has a real penis. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I'd be into pegging as much as I am if it weren't about power. The pleasure I want to see in you is the pleasure you get in dominating me, not some fakey moaning and groaning. Another example of rhetoric in sex would be a clitoral orgasm, which is rhetorically very different from a vaginal orgasm. Vaginal orgasms suggest penetration, which often suggests the presence of a phallus of some kind. Clitoral orgasms, on the other hand, don't require penetration, and they're often brought up in feminist discussions of sex and power, as well as discussions of male chastity in the femdom world. One argument for male chastity is that it basically incapacitates the phallus in order to focus more on the woman's pleasure. There are even male subs who are required to use strap-ons when the femdom does want pleasure from penetration. I know you want me to command you to do that. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time that I realized that you realized (laughs) that that's a possibility. So what do you think of that in general? Um, I actually never thought of that as a possibility. That's stupid. (laughs) <laughs> okay, that's pretty just clear. Just, I just don't see the point of that, really. I'm not that into penetrative sex to begin with. So, Either or both of those types of female orgasm can mean something very different to the top or giver than to the bottom or receiver. Giving someone an orgasm can create a major power rush. I've experienced it many times. But I have to say that the day I realized that a man, a specific man I'm talking about, not all men, wanted to give me orgasms to make him feel powerful, that was the day I stopped faking orgasms. Consent is also, of course, a rhetorical act. Based on the historiography of the Regency time period, it's pretty clear that the idea of sexual consent wasn't taken nearly as seriously as it is in the kink world today. Sex and marriage, especially among the aristocracy, wasn't really about personal choice at all. But what about incest, which is arguably the most shocking transgression in this story about the Regency? I mean, the Duke of Orléans was one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in Europe at the time and had many, many women to choose from. So why did he have to go after his own daughters? I would suggest that the stories about the Duke's incest have to do with both transgression and dominion. Louis XIV spent a lot of time and money attempting to keep his own people from usurping even one drop of power for themselves. So are you saying that what he was doing is a form of incest with the people in his country? Well, he certainly was exploiting his own people. And, of course, the kink world has all kinds of play that's connected to incest at some level. There's straight-up incest roleplay, like we see in incest porn. There are also daddy-doms and baby girls. 
which is an extremely popular kinky dynamic. Mm -hmm. There are mommy doms too, but I'm not sure of what the male counterpart to a baby girl is. Is it just a baby boy? I've never seen that before. I believe so. There's also people into lactation. I consider that a form of mommy baby incest dynamic. So what are the kinksters who practice this kink? What are they saying with it? One potential answer that I came up with, and I'm not 100% sure on this, it could be that they're pointing out the uncomfortable truth that raising a child is another form of domination, one that may be difficult and painful to give up as you see your child growing up and then coming into their own maturity. But what about the seesaw sex? What was even the point of that? I mean, first of all, I I really doubt that anyone had any orgasm from that, let alone multiple orgasms, as the passage seems to describe. It kind of reminds me of what I've read about the sex clubs in the red light districts of Thailand, women doing all kinds of silly tricks like shooting golf balls out of their pussy and writing names with their vaginas. I'm not saying it's not impressive, but is it sexy? Do you find it sexy? Not particularly, no. So maybe the seesaw sex was meant to be allegorical. It strikes me as highly mechanical. So maybe it's alluding to the world machine in Enlightenment philosophy. The deistic idea that the universe is basically a machine that God created and set in motion and then walked away from. So was there some kind of message about amorality in it? For sure, the 18th century was swinging into a scientific way of understanding the universe and a rejection of religious hypocrisy. Yeah, and the fact that the cardinal is underneath them, supporting them as the fulcrum in an act of sodomy or an unsanctioned act, That might be a perverse statement that the church is supportive of the mechanistic, rational, clockwork universe that you just described. So with this sex act, the cardinal is insulting the church in a deep and fundamental way. I don't know that the church in general was supporting that mechanistic view of the universe. We're talking about a cardinal that is perverse and... I think he was saying that there were far more perverts in the church than anybody realizing that he's part of it. And he's like living example of that depravity. And therefore, it's saying something about the church. And maybe all the bad behavior in general was an attack on the monarchy and the nobility as well, because they didn't try to hide any of their bad behavior. They flaunted it as if maybe they knew what was coming and they were setting themselves up for it ahead of time. I mean, that also describes the Marquis de Sade's entire life and work, which we will be discussing in the next episode. So thank you everyone for joining us today. And until next time, have a great week. Thank you.